Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, this is Roy Green, and this is the podcast of our program from Sunday, June the 17th. We spoke about chronic pain with the executive director of Pain British Columbia. The surge in gun crimes in Toronto is a huge concern, including two children aged five and nine, innocent bystanders as shots were fired at a man in a park where the kids were playing. I spoke with Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun about that. 19-year-old Lily Coleman, her very first attempt at writing a column was a spectacular success, in my view. It's about political correctness. She's a university student in the United States, and she joined us. Hit up Apple Podcasts or Google Play and subscribe to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you want, when you want it. In a moment, we're going to be talking to the executive director of Payne, British Columbia, the organization, but I also want to go back to a conversation we had with the then Federal Justice or Minister of Health, um, Jane Philpott, Dr. Jane Philpott. And Dr. Philpott's press secretary had called me and said, you're not really being fair as far as dealing with governments and how we approach the issue of pain management is concerned. And uh, your accusations that chronic pain patients are not being treated fairly. So the minister would like to talk to you. So we had that conversation. Here's how a, a little bit of that went. What are pain patients addicted to? Uh, can, you want to know what particular... Yeah, I'd like to know. You tell, you tell me, please, and tell my listeners, which includes chronic pain patients, one of whom will be joining me shortly. What are pain patients addicted to? Well, I think you are asking a question that is trying to uh, to describe the fact that there's a, a single or simple story, and I think that there, uh, I, I don't want to oversimplify. Uh, well, Minister, with, with, with due respect, I don't think you've answered any of my questions yet. Well, feel free to ask me another question then, and I'll see if I can satisfy you. So that was just one of the exchanges. You can still find that entire interview at RoyGreenShow.com in the podcasts. And we'll play another clip from it later on. But the issue of chronic pain is massive. In the United States, they're saying that upward of 100 million people are living with chronic pain. Upward of 100 million people. One out of roughly uh, one out of three in the U.S. In Canada, the number's generally estimated to be one out of five, so 20% in this country are living with chronic pain. And for many, as we've heard so frequently, the pain is so severe, their lives may sink into significant depression. And for some, suicidal thoughts become a regular occurrence. And suicide, to get away from the constant agony, becomes a reality. The number from the U.S. again, about 20,000 suicides annually, are generally attributed to chronic pain issues. There was a Toronto Star story that originated in Vancouver, and the headline is Proposed Rules for Chronic Pain Treatments Could Create Crisis for Patients. Now, that's not quite the picture that we heard last week, because the story last week was that uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of British Columbia had issued a directive to doctors not to ignore any pain patients, to treat them, and to not limit their access to opioid medication as it's necessary now, I'm not sure what these proposed rule changes are, although I understand what it is. Part of it is 
that there would be a, a broader team effort to try to treat chronic pain patients. Maria Hutspeth is the executive director of Pain BC. She joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Ms. Hudspeth, thank you so much for the time. Let me ask you, first of all, what is it you do? What's your mandate at uh, Pain BC? Uh, well, Roy, Pain BC is a collaborative, not-for-profit organization. So we bring together people living with pain, clinical experts, researchers, policymakers, and others. And our goal is to transform the way pain is understood and treated in our province. How is pain treated in your province at this particular time? Was the story we heard last week that the college had uh, instructed physicians to be more generous as far as taking on patients is concerned and more willing to prescribe opioids, is, was that a real development or was that just something that was taken out of a, out, out of a previous directive? Uh, no, there, what that was was a change in the legal standards uh, that physicians must adhere to in prescribing opioids or sedative medications. So in June of 2016, the college brought in new legal standards and guidelines to uh, really direct the way that prescribing was happening here in BC. This was the first province to bring in legal standards around prescribing. And what we saw as a result of that policy was a very dramatic change in the way opioids were being prescribed to people living with pain. So we heard many stories of people who uh, were being weaned very aggressively, some uh, people living with pain who were being cut off of their medications, uh, and certainly cases where patients were being denied care uh, because of either a history of needing opioids for pain uh, or even requesting opioids for pain. So physicians saying that they would be unwilling to uh, take on those patients. So the recent change that happened, the new standard uh, was uh, came into effect on June the 4th. And this uh, new standard prohibits physicians from discriminating against uh, patients, either because they have chronic pain because they're requesting opioids or because they have a history of using opioids for pain. So has the scenario then, the reality, really significantly changed for British Columbia chronic pain patients? Because I've spoken with chronic pain patients in BC as we've spoken with chronic pain patients across Canada and the United States, and at times their life is an unmanageable hell. So has it significantly changed then for the BC pain patient? Well, Roy, I think that we need to look at this most recent policy in the broader context of a system with a system of care for people living with pain. So you know from your own interviews with people living with pain that treating pain is not simple. There's not a silver bullet that is going to address pain for most people who have it. So this recent policy change is one piece in a broader sort of ecosystem of trying to figure out uh, ways to properly treat pain patients. But just on that one piece, on the, this new policy from the college, you know, policy gets made all the time, but it needs to be interpreted and then implemented by individual physicians. So what we're waiting to see is, is this policy change going to make a difference and are physicians who maybe have felt very concerned about potential sanctions or punishment from the college, are they going to take 
uh, a different approach because the college is saying you cannot discriminate and that care must be individualized. So not just across the board cutting people off or weaning everybody. So we're really waiting to see how this policy will be implemented. Of course. And yes, I've heard many times from pain patients across Canada uh, that their doctors have told them, doctors who've treated them for a significant period of time, I can no longer feel comfortable or safe prescribing you the medications I've been prescribing you, those medications being opioids, because those doctors said they feared for their licenses at times, or at least they feared there would be some kind of sanction or other that would be lowered on them by the colleges. And yet the colleges tell me repeatedly, no, we have not given any such uh, directive or we haven't issued any threats. We haven't we don't want our doctors to be concerned about that. So I've always said somewhere along the line, the communication is failing here. Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Some pain patients have told me they've gone to hospitals and emergency rooms when they felt they really required instant assistance. And now they're being looked at as though they were drug seekers and they aren't being properly treated. A doctor in California is being investigated. The story's in the news today because she humiliated and made fun of a patient who came to the ER with his father and who was suffering from tremendous pain. Ms. Hudspeth, um, I just want to read uh, a few lines from this news story, and maybe you can explain to us what, what's actually going on. The BC Medical Quality Initiative is reviewing their guidelines on pain management, and the proposed rules would require a high level of certification for non-hospital practitioners, meaning that the number of doctors working to administer treatment in local clinics outside the provincial health authorities could be greatly reduced. Does the pain patient now have to be concerned about a potential reduction in doctors who can actually provide pain management assistance? Definitely. There is an effort underway in our province, which... I think the intention is noble. You know, it's certainly an intention to create some common standards in terms of the kinds of training uh, and supervision that physicians need to do more complex pain procedures. So this is not um, a, a, a rule that will affect prescribing, but it is a rule that will affect interventional pain medicine. So those are treatments that typically uh, patients are accessing when many of the other things that work for chronic pain have failed. So these are things like facet uh, joint injections or other kinds of um, injections in the joint or even in the spine. And so the BC uh, Medical Quality Initiative is trying to create a common standard that will apply to physicians uh, in the province and because the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC has stated that they will adopt this new standard, it will eventually, from what we understand, apply to all physicians in both public institutions and private institutions. That standard is expected to be very, very high. And as a result, many physicians who have been providing these treatments historically will no longer be eligible. So when I say many of these physicians, we're really talking a small number of physicians that currently provide these services. So there are about 20 of them providing uh, these services outside of 
uh, our publicly funded hospital system. And we expect that that number, very, very few of them will actually meet this new standard, despite having provided these services for several years. That's frightening for chronic pain patients. It absolutely is. And I think um, my concern, uh, just as my concern with any of these policies, they may have a noble intention and be a good idea in theory, just like, you know, trying to bring a more uh, balanced approach to prescribing opioids. You know, it sounds great in theory, but what we've seen is that these policies have had unintended consequences for pain patients, and we're very concerned about that. You know, I spoke uh, a few weeks ago with the mother of a 30-year-old woman who's a police officer, and um, she's a mom herself, a 12-year-old, who was a great athlete, and then a few years ago started to develop some really serious pain conditions, chronic pain conditions, and she found herself unable. Now, this was in the United States, but she was unable to get any opioid prescriptions filled, even from the doctors who had been doing it for her previously. Her pain became so unmanageable that this 30-year-old mom and police officer shot and killed herself. A few days ago, I heard about a 61-year-old woman who very similarly was denied uh, pain medication, opioid pain medication, which had worked at least given her some quality of life. That was denied her because the doctors who were able to prescribe wouldn't because they had concerns about possible repercussions for them. She took a gun and shot herself. Opioids provide some degree of quality of life. There's no, there's no good reason to force people into situations where they actually contemplate taking their own lives because their pain medications have been so severely restricted or just denied. I, I absolutely agree with you, and I think this is a case where for many years, you know, there are lots of things in the pain management toolbox. Physio is helpful for many people. Psychological support is helpful. Opioids are helpful. So, but what we've seen is what has been publicly funded in uh, Canada is the medication piece only and not those other pillars of evidence-based pain management. So as a result, you know, it was really this system and many of uh, part, many of the parts of the system in terms of what gets paid for um, that has created a kind of over-reliance on opioids as the only pillar in the pain management toolbox that people can access. And now we're seeing this pendulum swing back. It's, for the most part, you know, this is not has nothing to do with individual patients and any kind of fault of theirs. Most people are managing uh, their medications very responsibly. They're not diverting them. They're not misusing them. But it's those patients that are being caught in the crossfire of this broader public policy issue. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I'm as concerned as you are about that, and we're hearing similar stories here in BC. I'm sure you are. How do people get in touch with you? Uh, Well, we have a very active social media presence, so they could just go on Facebook and search for Pain BC. Um, They can find us on the web at uh, painbc.ca. Really, any social media platform, just search for us and you'll find us there. Ms. Hudspeth, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate talking to you. Thanks for your attention to this issue, Roy. Take care. Bye-bye. Maria Hudspeth, Pain BC. The Roy Green Show podcast is the only podcast hosted by Roy Green. Which makes sense. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. 
Joe Warmington, great columnist with the Toronto Sun, joins me. And it's always a pleasure. Really, it's uh, it's an honor to talk to you, Joe, because you're 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 one of the few sensible people I know. Period. Well, I'll tell you one thing: uh, the gangs there they they must have uh, heard John Tory because there was only two shootings last night, uh, two emergency runs to St. Mike's. So, yeah, I'm sure they're just shaking in their boots. They must have as soon as he started wagging that finger. It's <laughs> they're putting their guns away. It's terrible, though. We're it, two, yeah, we're up to two, or pretty close to 200 shootings we've had. Wow. Eight homicides in the last 13 days. You know, we had two girls uh, shot in the you know, playground, which you know. And, you know, again, that's nothing uh, new. You take the girls in the playground out of it, that's just, you know, called a Thursday or a Friday around here. Yeah. Well, you know, Joe, when I, when I heard the story... And I didn't get the location the first the first uh, time I heard the story. I tuned in when it was already underway, and I heard five and nine year old shot in a park where eleven other kids were playing as an individual shooting at somebody else. I thought Chicago. You know what I thought? I got to tell you what I thought. I thought I have a five year old who was actually at that time playing in a playground. Not oh, no. that one, but that's what I thought, and that's what every parent thought. You know. Yeah. I, I know what you mean, though. I get your point. We're well past that. I mean, we're, we are that now. Well, well, I hope we don't become Chicago. I mean, take a look. We are Chicago. And it's even worse in many ways because our shooting in Chicago, and I've been there, I've covered many things there, it's pretty well in the same area where they do it there. It's horrible. And, again, it's really bad leadership there. Here... Uh, it could happen anywhere. They'll come right into your, you know, right into Young and Dundas and do the shooting there. They'll do it at a funeral. They'll do it in the Eaton Center. They'll do it on Young Street, mm-hmm. in a school, in a church, anywhere. What is it going to take to, 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 to I don't think you it's know, going to be stopped. Know, What's going to take to slow it down? Roy Green, Roy Green show. Go back and listen to Roy. You ever heard of Roy Green? Listen to the show 15 years ago. Mandatory minimums. Yeah. And I it was five years. You know what it should be? It should be 10 years, and it should be consecutive, you know, with whatever it is you're also convicted of. So if it's attempted murder, you get the attempted murder, whatever that is, and then an additional 10 years for a weapon on top of that. I'm talking either a knife or gun. And then yeah, we'll have see, uh, you know, we'll see what people are thinking then. But you know what? All the lawyers will be emailing in now going, no, 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 no. Oh, sure. And and uh, you'll get these civil rights activists telling you that you're wrong, that you can't do that kind of thing. You can't, you can't punish wrong. somebody like They're that. Around. They ruined our, they're ruining our country. I mean, the border is open. The people are running around at will. They're, they're shooting at our damn kids in the playground when they want to. That's what's going on. Somebody has to yell at these people. I mean, they're, they're, our, our, our kids are dying. The only reason why it's not at 100 homicides in Toronto it's because of the EMS, paramedics, and the, the amazing doctors and nurses in these units that they have to push everybody else away and lock it down so that they can go in and save the lives of these gangsters that are being shot. Everybody else, go to hell. You wait. And if you're there with somebody that's sick, having a heart attack, wait outside. You can't come in because the gangster might come in and shoot the place up. It's out of control. And it's disgusting, and I'm so angry about it, but I don't know what to do because I just keep telling it year after year. And you're the only one that asked me to come on. And you know why? Because you're the only one that will call it as it is. I mean, everybody else is afraid. The other day, 
when this happened, a lot of the shows were talking about everything else except for this, just glossing it over. Can't gloss this over. I'm talking about the two girls that were Man, no, I hear you. shot. Yeah. You know, Joe, so, when it you gets... Know what? It's going to be a politician's kid, and then we'll be interested, and it is going to happen because, you know, they're, they're not fooling us. I mean, we know what's going on. You get a gun anywhere. You can't card. You can't look at somebody. You can't say anything. If you say anything, you're racist. I mean, you know, they're turning the place into a shooting gallery. It is a shooting gallery. Yeah. Mr. Tory's, Mr. Tory's speech was, with all due respect, was vacuous. It's going to have zero effect on somebody who looks at a, a target in a park, sees another human being as a target, and considers 11 kids who are playing there as potential collateral da- damage and acceptable. They're not going to listen to John Tory wagging his finger and saying, this has to stop. We have to tell you you can't do this here. Please. Well, he's the guy who went and took the carding out because he listened to Desmond Cole, who apparently was pulled over 50 times, even though it was now five times, and even though most of the time it was you know Desmond that engaged it. should never have happened. Now, John Tory does care. I have spoken to him about it. I don't doubt that. He made a big mistake the other day. He went out and he did the news conference about the girls. And then he went into bike safety and about how people were upset about that. That was the front page of the Toronto Star and the Global Mail. They're talking about bike safety. Look, okay, bike safety is important. Maybe you shouldn't have the bikes out on those roads where those big trucks are. But uh, we'll get to bike safety. I want to talk about playground safety. I want to talk about, you know, average people. You know, I covered and I was on your show about Ruma Amar at the bowling alley. I don't know no one knows her name or cares about her. She was just married and she's dead because she went bowling with her husband and her sister. And there's a lot of other names. I mean, we can go through them all. And, uh, you know, I'm going to keep doing that as long as I can. And, um, you know, I'm not mad at John Tory because there's a lot of judges, we don't know the names, have to let these people out all the time. Oh, yeah. This is really all, a lot about that, too. Look, there's, there's people who have 75, 85, 100 previous criminal convictions, and they're, 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 they're cut free, they're cut loose, unless they're designated dangerous offenders. And and they have to do that before the charge is laid in the last crime they committed. Joe, I gotta go, but thank you, sir. Um, you're the dad of the five-year-old. You get it. Everybody else should get it. And we're either going to do something about it, or it's going to get worse. Well, next week, you know, the story will be something else. You'll yeah. see, and uh, and we'll see where it goes. But, All right, uh, Joe. Let's hope you're right. Yeah, happy Father's Day to everybody. Sorry, I'm so upset. No. you just have hit a nerve here today. Yeah, I hear you, my friend. Happy Father's Day. Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for the Roy Green Show podcast 100% free. 100% Roy. The other day, I read a column. I was going through some online sites, and uh, I found this new site that interested me. It's called RightOutlook, rightoutlook.org. And they'd followed me on Twitter, and so I followed them because it was, it was interesting. And I found this column about political correctness. So I started reading, and I kept on reading and kept on reading, and I thought, this is great. This is really bang on. This is this hits the mark. And I fully expected, and I specifically went back to see who'd written it, because I fully expected that I would find a very well-known, very famous writer, a very significantly important person who understood the how society uh, should work, and somebody I would probably have had a great deal of respect for for a long time. And instead, I found a name I, I'd never seen before. And the name was Lily Coleman. So 
I got in touch with uh, writeoutlook.org. I s- sent them a, a tweet and asked if they could put me in touch with Lily, and, um, and she got back to me. And I find out she's a university student, a college student in, uh, in the United States at Western Carolina University. She's 19 years of age. And Lily, thank you for coming on the show. And if I recall correctly in our email exchange, this is your first attempt at a column. Yes, it is. Well, it's just wonderful. And thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what was before I ask you to read, um, I, I want to ask you to read it all, but we've asked you to maybe to edit it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the motivation? Why did you decide to write about political correctness? So I really feel like me being a university student, first of all, um, I kind of see the effects of this in uh, modern academia today, how students and, and professors kind of are suppressed and how knowledge in general um, isn't able to be let out to everybody else. The marketplace of ideas is basically being you know, suppressed, and which I think is very detrimental because we're all losing um, the opportunities to hear these uh, ideas, whether they're opposing or for us. So I think that's what pretty much motivated me to write this, because I've always been interested in, in the um, subject of freedom of expression, because I feel like it is the fundamental uh, right, and so I felt like I should address this. Well, good for you, because it is our fundamental right, and it's, what, <laughs> it's a cornerstone of our of our democratic societies. Right. Uh, that we're, we're allowed to do this. Now, let me ask you, how many of uh, your peers at the university are supportive of what you've done? Um, they haven't really um, known a whole bunch about this, you know. This was actually not as a column. This was for an English paper, and it was for a persuasive essay. So my teacher, she was very liberal with it, and she um, uh, was very supportive, even though you know, we didn't exactly align with opinions, but I got a good response from her. Well, that's good. So somebody who does not necessarily agree with the with, with the theme of what you wrote still mm-hmm. accepted it as being a valuable contribution, and that's good. We don't always hear that about university professors. Would you share with us, please, some of your column? Right. Okay, so um, I start out by saying, undoubtedly, every one of us as humans has experienced barriers to our communication, um, such Uh, Barriers could be a disability or social detriment. But in other cases, sometimes it's political correctness. Um, So political correctness today has affected our language directly because it kind of filters our language through this sieve of political correctness before being encoded to the rest of society. Unfortunately, in the process of eliminating from our language those ideas or views which do not meet the criteria of political correctness, vital facts and knowledge are lost. Um, the repercussions of this weeding out of knowledge are reflected in our educations, our, our education, schools, and literature. Um, so not only have the students in our educational institutions been suppressed by this, but also, like I said, the professors. Um, another effect of political correctness is to, our, to ourselves in society, is to our language directly. Political correctness affects our thoughts and whether we choose to communicate them and how we go about channeling our thoughts to fit the politically correct mold. Um, And also, it's it's become a great barrier to great communication. 
It's banned books from our, our libraries, banned books from the curriculum being taught at schools because we don't agree with, with what content perhaps they cover. So that's just a little bit of what the article is about. It's addressing how it's affected the universities, um, our language, and our literature. You know, I, it's not fair what I did to you. I asked our, uh, our producer to uh, ask you if you could maybe edit it a little bit, and that was about an hour before we went on the air, and that's not fair. Because, no, uh, you're good. You know, it's, it's, it's just a wonderful, wonderfully written piece. Would you read us that paragraph that uh, starts with not only have the students in our education institutions lost the, uh, felt the winds of suppression, would you just read us that as you wrote it without any editing? Right. So not only have the students or educational institutions felt the winds of suppression from political correctness, but the teachers have especially. This perhaps is the most detrimental to our ed- educational advances as a society. Professors fill every day the fatal breath of the beast of political correctness. In fear of losing their position or good standing in the institution's eyes, professors often avoid certain topics or completely delete from their curriculum valid facts which, although perhaps uncomfortable, are crucial to the advancement of learning. Um, for example, perhaps in a literature class, the professor decides not to examine an excerpt from Tom Sawyer because of the potential controversy which might arise. Thus, students miss out on one of the great classic works in American literature. Also, in the pursuit of teaching from a purely objective standpoint, students are bereaved of the opportunity to glean from the personal experience and knowledge of a highly intellectual and learned professor. Political correctness has already banished from our libraries and classrooms some of the greatest works in literature. As one of the abominations of our day, and there are many, is the beast of political correctness that has been turned loose on the world. I, I, I just love it. I just want to read the last sentences there of your column. Political correctness has become a great barrier to great communication in mm-hmm. our attempts as a culture to become more progressive and inclusive. We blindly, under the leadership of political correctness, have, through coer- the coercion of communication and expression, become a more close-minded and unfair society. If we wish to advance as a civilization, we must reopen the markers, uh, the market of ideas, and then will advances be made, advances in learning and uh, harmony amongst our compa- companions. That is so well written. Uh, unfortunately, this printer is gives me like a one font, and my eyes can't, <laughs> can't read that anymore. But but it's just beautifully, beautifully written. I want to let our listeners know, if you go to writeoutlook.org, writeoutlook.org, and then you uh, you can find political correctness, um, by L- Lily Coleman, or you can just Google it, which I also did. Lily Coleman, that's L- I-L-L-Y-C-O-L-E-M-A-N, Lily Coleman, and uh, political correctness. Uh, what, do you, what do you want to do with your life? What, do you have any idea where you want to go, what, what you're going to do professionally? Um, I'm interested in going into law, maybe, or journalism. So this is kind of... this kind of paralleled with what I'm interested in pursuing as my career in the future. Well, I wish you all the very best, Lily, and uh, please keep on writing. Thank you so much. Take good care. You too. Lily Coleman. It's really an excellently written column, and I, it wasn't fair because we asked Lily uh, just an hour, about an hour ago if she could um, edit it a bit because we just didn't have all the time to hear it all, but, uh, and, and that's hard to do. Edit your own stuff when you've got little time. 
but you'll enjoy reading it. Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. The Roy Green Show podcast is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you like what you hear, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a review and tell a friend.